0: Hi everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we're going to be discussing issues in opera. This is going to be the first in a long series, I'm sure, of episodes that are targeting specific issues in opera that we're seeing. Today's episode is about racism. This is just a few of the issues that we're going to cover. We're in no way doing a comprehensive coverage of racism in opera, but we wanted to give you some talking points. We wanted to give you some things to take back to your friends, to your school, to your opera companies, and to discuss. And some ways that we as individuals can correct them and also what we can do within our larger organizations to fix them. But before we get into what is kind of an intense topic, I was listening to Classically Black podcast this week, and they had a quarantine checklist. And I brought it up with Michelle while we were planning this episode. And I just want to ask everybody, are people really that overwhelmingly obsessed with the way that people put toilet paper onto a, a roll? do people really care about over under because michelle really cares and i really do not and it bothers me to know that people care so much
1: jesse what 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 is what whomst um i don't think there's a right uh, or a wrong way what what side are you on jesse
0: i mean once again i'm a i'm gonna just put it on the roll and i don't care but i guess if i were to choose the side i would choose under
1: she has entered the fighting ring (laughs) no i don't understand no jesse no you are wrong toilet paper goes under no wait what (laughs) oh my god you brainwashed me no i added the podcast so it stays in no it goes over
0: Over everything
1: after that i'm just gonna keep right there false toilet paper goes over it's just I don't make the rules, it's just law, okay? I just don't see how it matters. That's that's my big statement. It's just, when you go to a hotel, I told you this, when you go to a hotel and they fold the last little square into a triangle, which way does it face? Is it over or under?
0: Face is over, but I wouldn't decorate my house or design my house like a hotel.
1: Yes, but hotel bathrooms are usually, like, one of the things that maybe makes a little bit more sense in a hotel.
0: I also don't fold my towels like a hotel. <laughs>
1: I don't know. Let us know. Are you an over or an under (laughs) kind of kind of toilet paper person? Because I feel strongly about this.
0: Please let me know if I'm just so horrifically wrong
1: here, but I just don't think it matters. That's my statement. Is it life changing? No. (laughs) But is there a right way to do it? Yes.
0: This is like those people who like. This is like which end of the banana do you open a banana on? What? I'm not getting into it. There are people who who think that the only way to right right way to open a banana is from the bottom because opening it from the stem is actually a little more difficult. I oh, personally. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! No! This is what? an opera podcast, so we really cannot spend all
1: day on this. I'm upset. <laughs>
0: You know, we'll get into Bananas next episode, but for now, let's stick to the toilet paper and like into
1: the episode. (laughs) All right. Well, now I'm heated. (laughs) But aside from that, a couple announcements for y'all. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. If you're not already following us on our socials, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Opera Offstage. We have lots of different events that we do throughout the day, a lot of different little fun things to share. So one of the things that we do is our opera watch party. We do that every week on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. And we usually let you guys vote on Wednesdays about what opera we're going to watch. So it's a lot of fun. We host it for free over cast. And these last couple weeks have been, honestly, this all of 2020 has been very stressful, very eye-opening, and it has just been weighing on a lot of our hearts. So We decided we're actually not going to vote this week because we're going to go with Johnny Skiki, because we all need some comedy, some laughter, something lighthearted, and Johnny Skiki is chicken noodle soup for the soul. So we're going with that this week. It's going to be a good time. But we also want to let you know, for those of you that join us on our opera watch parties, come July, our opera watch parties are actually going to look a little different. Instead of doing them every Friday, we're going to move them to the second Friday of every month. So once a month, we'll still get to vote. It'll still be a great time, but we'll do it once a month.
0: We hope you'll join us on the second Friday of every month as we continue to do those watch parties because they've been a lot of fun. Now, to start us off, I wanted to talk about the Met. So to start us off, I actually want to specifically go into something that is Truly a passion of mine. Something I'm considering starting to list on my resume, which is roasting Anna Trebco. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: is a full-time job for you, basically.
0: It is. And I, I really think it'll spice up that resume and really give the, the yap something to ask me about.
1: So if you were to add it to your Instagram bio, what, what would you title yourself as?
0: Professional Anna Trebco Roaster.
1: There we go. Really, my, my goal is a lot of people this week have gotten blocked
0: by Anna Trebko, which is also funny to me. But in case anyone missed it, Anna Trebko, in light of everything happening, posted a black square on her Instagram. I think she's a, she since deleted it. Originally, she just made it so that you couldn't comment on it. But a bunch of people immediately roasted her because she did blackface this summer. And and she never apologized for it that's the other thing she never turned around and said like you know what it was wrong of me to do that she was just like oh yeah no i'm gonna jump on this movement without ever apologizing for the fact that i explicitly did something very wrong i got and it just the fact that we talked about that like two or three weeks ago does make me laugh
1: yeah if you want to really watch jesse go off on on an co, just listen to our diva devos and drama episode
0: well this is also just like not even close to the only time she's like said something explicitly <laughs> horrible. So I'm just I'm over Anna Natrepko, just saying. And then she also pulled out of Salome, but I that that could be for any number of reasons at this point. I'm I'm unconcerned with that fact.
1: <laughs> Honestly, watching you roast Anna Depko is like watching ESPN or something.
0: I'm the same. i've got the stats out
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm. <laughs> it's the same level of entertainment and honestly i look forward to it <laughs> mm-hmm. every time
0: we will I'm, I'm sure i'll be back at it just give me a little bit of time um no but more importantly something that actually is <laughs> important to focus on is the met released two statements this week they had a shorter one which once again immediately roasted by the public because it just doesn't ring true to what's been happening at the Met for the past couple years. Um, so to put out a statement that's kind of bland and vague doesn't really help. Doesn't really address the issue of what's been wrong.
1: It genuinely was the- so vague. And so... Oh, yeah. Just... S- it, it. There was not a drop of sincerity in it. No.
0: Well, part of part of institutions dealing with this is admitting wrongdoing. I think there are very few people who want to see the Met just sink into the ocean. Most people don't want the Met to disappear from existence. What they want is for the Met to recognize like, oh, we've genuinely messed up and we recognize it. Exactly. But instead, the Met is very much covering their ass.
1: Very much tone deaf, very much neutral and compliant.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to break down some of the problems. I took a specific statement out of a larger portion, because it's a whole page, and I'm not going to make you listen to me read their whole page. But I took the part that I found specifically to be kind of troubling in their longer, fuller statement on their website. It says, last season, the Met committed to establishing a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan to provide a framework for approaching the important and ongoing work of examining the Met systems and structures and who they do and do not support, we identified as a vital first step in that process that we need to engage our community in conversations about their perspectives on the MET so that their voices could guide our initiatives and path forward. We look forward to launching these conversations right away. So everything about that statement is super big. <laughs> Weak. And I think purposefully so, because then... If you go back, you know, the Met can say any number of things to cover for themselves because they're not listing explicit things. They're saying that they have this ongoing, um, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion plan. But what does that include? Like that's it doesn't say what that means. Are they going to start, you know, specifically hiring people for all levels, including artists, directors, musicians, administrators, like, is that what that is? Or is it just, we're gonna self-examine and find ourselves faultless. And I think like a good counter, Michelle sent me this week, Boston Conservatory's letter to their students about what they were doing. And I thought it was a really solid letter. I'm not gonna talk about it right here, right now, because I don't have it in front of me, but if you go look up Boston Conservatory's statement, it's very, very specific about some of their plans. And it leaves no question that you could come back to that a year or two from now and say, I don't think we've fulfilled the things we set out to fulfill. Whereas this one, you can't really say anything because they haven't actually said they're going to do anything.
1: Yeah. I've seen a a lot of kind of vague statements where they say we're excited to engage in these conversations. These conversations need to happen. We're listening. And while that is great and true, it has no action. There's no plan. There's no date or any sort of accountability that you can hold them to. So it's just, it's disappointing because, I mean, the Met is run by a gazillion people. It's no small organization that has a team of five scrambling to try and figure out a plan, right? There are so many people behind that organization that you would just hope that there would be some sort of plan, you know, especially if they're going to be so bold oh, yeah. to say, last season we committed to establishing. What did you establish? You should already have plans, no? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Well, and the other funny thing was in their larger statement, it does make a comment on the fact that they've committed not to changing people's skin color with makeup. And I was like, I don't know if you get to claim that as a positive if it's like less than a year after that the last time you did it.
1: Yeah. Like we we did. You did it in 2019. It's true. I mean, you would hope that in 2019 and in 2020 Bragging about the fact that you're not going to use blackface or any other version of offensive makeup and costume would be something more than the bare minimum, you know, it's not something to brag about that huge actionable step that you're taking. We've all known for a long time that that's wrong. So saying, look at us, how good we are. We're not going to do this anymore when you just did it a year prior. Like, it's just, it's weak.
0: The other thing that really bothers me about this statement is it says, while it's very important to keep an open dialogue with your community, because I think that's part of what's happened is the people who the Met expects their funding from and the audiences they bring in are not necessarily the same people and have different expectations of what the Met should be doing. And that's a whole nother conversation about who's funding, where does the money come from? But a lot of this statement puts the pressure on the community to, keep coming up with action plans for the Met. Which is crazy because by saying the community, they're specifically kind of letting you know that they're not going to pay these people. Which is wrong because they've been doing the work. They've been telling the Met what they need from them to stop doing blackface and to start hiring more. And you know, they've they've been putting these plans forward to the Met for a very, very long time. And so to sit there and say, oh well will you keep yelling it at us so that we eventually get the point Is not fair if you want them to tell you what to do, hire them and pay them to do so.
1: Yes, and this also ties in to reread that telling sentence. They say, We identified as a vital first step in that process that we need to engage our community in conversations about their perspectives on the Met so that their voices could guide our initiatives and path forward. This places a lot of responsibility and expectation on people of color to be doing the work. To educate them which if you have exactly. learned one thing in this week and these past couple months is that it is nobody's job to do that for you that is something that you do yourself and so for them to say we identified that our first step is to add, tell our community to basically educate us is all sorts of wrong
0: yeah it's just such a mess it's it's as if They're pretending like no one has said anything to them before this moment until it was so overwhelming that they had no choice but to respond. And you know what? This is something that's been reverberating all through this week. Listen, the information is already out there. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's not like there aren't books and articles and things written on it. The people behind all of this planning need to get two things straight. They need to go ahead and read and see all the information that's already been handed to them. The people have already put their blood, sweat, and tears into it. And then... If they still need help and guidance, they need to hire people to do it. They need to pay them to do so. They need to not expect people to give them free information and spend more of their time and energy on this than they already have.
1: Absolutely. And it's just been interesting to watch statements come out from different companies. I would say, by and large, smaller opera companies are doing a much better job. And I feel that, in my personal opinion, their addresses are much more sincere than a lot of the larger companies but the met is by like definitely not the only opera company that has released a kind of lukewarm statement but it is disappointing because the met specifically is one of the most visible opera houses in the world definitely in the united states so we would hope from an institution so large that they would take the responsibility to educate themselves and actually put forward a actionable, heartfelt statement. But that is not what we received.
0: Truly. And that's the other thing is, even though not every opera house in the U.S. takes their cue from the Met, a lot of international opera houses do. Yeah. So if we really want to send a statement everywhere, which is important, the Met really does send a signal to the opera houses around the world what is acceptable And it's important that they get on board because they are so far behind. Like, they are not a little behind on the times. They have been dragging their feet for decades.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I also feel that they have a responsibility to showcase artists that make people want to come to the opera. You know, I mean, something that is obviously so important is seeing and having role models that look like you on the stage. Right. And we don't get as much of that as we could or as we should. And so... I don't know how we continue with opera if it's just such a small group of people. I don't know how we could ever expect opera to be what we would hope it to be if it, the people involved are such a small, exclusive group.
0: Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. And it was frustrating that after having all this time to think about it and doing it, you know, and especially if they do already have this, this commission, this group in place, that they could not make an explicit statement on what they were going to do. Because that, to me, just speaks to the fact that they don't really plan on doing anything. That they are waiting for things to blow over so they don't have to deal with it. Yeah. And whether or not that's true will be seen. We're going to keep our eyes on them and we're going to keep watching. We're going to get into this a little bit more. But obviously, in the wake of, of this past week, we've seen a lot of organizations and companies and groups reach out to Black people en masse, asking them to come and give lessons on how they can better diversify their companies and how they can be supportive and how, you know, and there's a lot of people asking people they previously ignored to write things for them, whether that be plays, operas, articles, what have you. It's definitely a lot of people have been saying, you know, all these groups that previously ignored me are now begging me to come and work with them. But the other thing that I've been hearing, and especially um, from people like Julia Bullock and Dr. John Paul, who you should definitely go follow. I follow them on Twitter and it's they're great to listen to. But one of the things that I've been seeing and hearing is that a lot of it is about black trauma. And it's asking very specifically, very frequently for these people to relive their trauma at the hand of racist institutions. Which is understandable in the sense that like that's what people are wanting to know about right now. And that's what a lot of people are asking, you know, tell us what's happening so we can respond to it. And they're Kind of two problems with that. Number one, a lot of these people have been outspoken for years about what's happening. And so asking them to continually repeat it is kind of cruel on a level because you're asking them to re-experience trauma um, for your benefit. And especially with the number of resources we already have at our hands. But even on the more artistic side, you know, people keep reaching out, but they aren't necessarily letting people express themselves as they wish. A lot of people want to see works and art and movies and things that are only about the traumatic side of the experience of being black, which is not the full story of what it is to be anything. And so it's important that as we move forward with this, we don't let companies, uh, and especially the arts, commodify grief. Absolutely. Because there is joy in life as well. I mean, you don't get to just take only one side so that you can feel good about recognizing it. There is such a full experience in life and to box people into one corner and only want to hear about the traumatic parts
1: of life is is wrong. It's wrong. Let's put it simply. Well, yeah, and I, I have a lot of sympathy because, I mean, now that everybody is reaching out to these, you know, Black artists, these activists, approaching them to talk about what's going on, I, I feel like so many of them have responded with, I've been talking about this the whole time. You just were never listening. And so it's that just like weighs so heavy on my heart because that just sucks. You know, everything about that sucks.
0: I was going to say, it's also that demand for the immediacy. It's the ignorance of saying, you know, a lot of these people have written books and plays before. You can go read those now. You don't need them to shorthand it for you so you don't have to do the work.
1: Yeah, we should not be asking these people to spark notes their own work because it's more immediate and easier for us to feel like we educated ourselves.
0: Yeah. And I mean, imagine if, for you, whatever traumatic experience you've had in your own life, imagine if that was the only thing anyone ever wanted to hear about. Imagine if you never got to talk about the other types of art and the other types of art you want to make, the types of stories you want to tell, or the amazing work you're already doing in whatever it is, the field you're in. What if everyone always constantly just circled back to your trauma and never let it be about anything else?
1: I mean, that would, would, that's destructive. Yeah, that really doesn't help anybody.
0: Be open and willing to hear people out when they are willing and ready and comfortable to talk about their trauma, but do not force it out of them for your entertainment.
1: Yeah. Very much agreed. Yeah, I think that, You know, as more people talk about their experiences and as we learn from them when they want to talk to us about that kind of stuff, we should actively share the good things that are happening and the wonderful art that these people have been creating always and are creating now. So I really like the idea of just kind of putting more positive awareness out there because I think that that just helps people, you know, watching and seeing art just is very calming or can be and i just yeah we need to see more of the things that they're working on and not just them talking about their trauma oh yeah we need both
0: i mean don't just engage in you know the anti-racism reading lists and all of that are incredible resources and you should be digging into those especially as as we move forward but also you know Read no, read fiction books written by Black authors. Just engage with Black art in general. Yeah. And also, I'll say this. I'm, I meant to mention this earlier, but if you haven't gone and listened to the conversation that happened on LA Opera's page, it's, it's a great first step. If you are looking to understand better what happens inside of our industry as opera singers, please go watch that. It's like an hour and 20 minutes, but it's a, a great understanding of what's happening and has been happening. So go look at that. Also, Opera is Racist is an Instagram account where people have been anonymously putting in their stories of what's been happening in opera companies, the things they haven't been comfortable to say or, you know, get overlooked. So go read those stories. And I think it'll start to give you a better look into what we are missing, what we are not noticing because it doesn't affect us directly. Yeah. And now Michelle has a, a very important message.
1: I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but here we are. So I'm going to say it. White people have no reason to be playing roles that are purposefully written to showcase the stories of people of color. One more time for the people in the back. (laughs) White people have no reason to be playing roles that are purposefully written to showcase the stories of people of color. Period. This is an issue. It's always been an issue, but it shouldn't be an issue anymore. And, and I know it's easy for me to, be, to say that, to just be like, we should be better than this. But truthfully, we should. It's just oh, shocking yeah. to me that this is, I mean, this is, this is step one. We're not even past step one. You know, we got to be better. We got to do better. And I think some shows that we can all kind of identify as traditionally problematic are Aida, Madame Butterfly, Turandot, Othello. West Side Story, Hairspray, The Color Purple, Once on This Island, The King and I, and by far my least favorite musical (laughs) theater piece in the entire world, South Pacific.
0: (laughs) I can really truly live the rest of my life without ever seeing South Pacific again.
1: South Pacific is the singular most boring musical I've ever seen in my life. You could not force me to watch it. It's also like operatic length. It's operatic length. It's so long. And it's super uncomf. And if you don't think that it's uncomf, check yourself. (laughs) But even more than that, there's like three or four good songs. But then there's all this stuff that happens in between those three or four redeeming-ish, but not even really songs. And it's just, it's so painful. It's so painful to me.
0: I enjoyed some Enchanted Evening the very first time I heard it. By the end of the show, when I'd heard it and its reprisals 800 times, I was already over it. <laughs> but back to the big picture about this. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: do not let the, the sexy bass baritones that sing that swoon you, okay? Mm-mm. It's bad.
0: You want to sing this? Sing it in your shower. You're going to survive. You yeah. will survive never doing some of these roles. You will.
1: Oh, yeah. You're
0: going to be fine.
1: Yeah. And some of these, some of the productions I named are just inherently problematic. And some of them are more problematic because, once again, white people have no reason to be playing roles that are purposefully written to showcase the stories of people of color.
0: Yeah, I think the musical theater sometimes, even, even though opera has a history of like, opera up until this very moment has been very chill about putting white people in these roles. But I think on a community theater level, The King and I, Atrocious! I've seen so much.
1: Yeah, the issue with a lot of these, with these, uh, with these musicals in particular, is that they're done by high schools that have like one or two students of color or none at all, and then they're like, "Wow, we got the pass to do this now," and it's like, (laughs) "No, you don't. (laughs) Nope." (laughs) Yeah, I I have the particular
0: misfortune to say that I watched both both my high school and one of the colleges I attended, spray tan people for roles. Yeah, that happened. That's a Oof. thing that happened. Oof. Oof. Yeah, which yeah. leads us into our next point, which is that white people should never use costume, makeup, or anything of that kind to assume the di- identity of any black, indigenous, or person of color. <laughs> Even if you don't use outright blackface, it's still inappropriate. Like, I'm sure a lot of the justification is, in my high school and university was like that they weren't doing like the cartoonish thing it's still wrong to artificially darken your skin color to play something to play a character that you are not
1: yeah and i mean regardless even if you were to cast a white person as a you know a role that should be a person played by a person of color and you don't use makeup or costumes it still is missing the point that those stories are not meant to be told by white actors You know? Oh, yeah. It still is... If you say, well, you know, we didn't use blackface or any of the other discriminatory makeup or costumes, you're not... You don't get a gold medal for that. That still is missing the point.
0: There are tons of shows you can do, you know? Well, first of all, if the problem is, like, oh, how would we possibly find enough people to cast to do X show? That's a problem with the theater or the opera house. That's a huge problem for them, Because there are plenty of people to play roles. Just because they're not in your chorus that you've already hired, that's a problem for you. That's not a problem with us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that leaves me to point number two, which is why people should not accept these roles even if offered. Now, this might seem tricky, but it's not. You might say, well, I'm a white person and I was offered the role of Maria, and I feel like working with this company or doing this role is really going to help me or I need the money or I need the connections brought with this role. You need to stop and ask yourself if you want to be working with these types of companies. But honestly, even if it does end up coming down to just money, you need the money. To me, that's not ethical money that you're going to make, you know, and you have to sit with that and kind of wrestle. Am I okay to profit off of playing a role that is not appropriate for me to play, you know?
0: This is what it comes down to. These are the steps that come beyond just reading and listening and learning, which is just a phrase that has gotten exhausting to hear over the past couple days. This is what comes next, is being willing to let go of money and jobs and opportunities in order to do what's right. That is what matters. Uh, It's not just understanding that it's wrong, it's not doing it. And it sucks. But you have to remember that this is the work that other people have been doing for decades in order to try to get equality. It's turning down things that they really wanted. It's saying no and standing up for themselves. So you have to be prepared to do that too. That's what being an ally is about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So hold yourself accountable. If you really do want to be an ally when you are put in this position of being offered a role that is not necessarily appropriate for you to play, you need to wrestle with it. You know, you need need to think about if you really want to commit to the lifelong commitment that is being an ally, can I take this role? Is it ethical for me to accept this money? And then <laughs> the, the third part of my st- uh, this statement is we often assume that characters, that roles are white because it has become very normal for white to be the default. But... If a character's whiteness is not specifically serving the plot or is not integral to the character, then we really should have a lot more freedom to cast Black, Indigenous people of color in these roles. Because if their whiteness doesn't have anything to do with the plot or their makeup as a character, why can't they be somebody else? Exactly.
0: And this is one of those weird, dumb statements that people bring up. They're like, well, if I can't play this, then... These people shouldn't be able to play this. And it's just kind of a dumb... It, I've never seen someone, I think, legitimately and honestly argue this, except for maybe with Hamilton. Hamilton, I watched people argue this all day and night, and it was very stupid. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But most of the time when I see this argument, it's just because people want to be reactionary and they want to, you know, create consequences and a false dichotomy. Well, yeah. The fact is, it, in most shows... Being white is not central to the
1: experience of a character. So yeah, a classic example of this is um, actor-singer Cooper Howell just posted on Facebook a couple days ago about his experience as playing Hans as a person of color at the Hyperion Theater at Disneyland. He basically breaks it down to the first director that he worked with made it a wonderful, safe, very high art kind of experience. Um, which he was really pleased by when you consider that they're just doing Frozen. Um, But he said that it was just like a very wonderful environment to be in. And then that first director was replaced with a second that made it a complete living hell. I think, you know, looking at something like that, you know, someone might say Frozen is supposed to take place in Norway. So so Hans is supposed to be white. But I mean, when you got Elsa... (laughs) (laughs) letting it go with her ice powers and ice monsters and you got olaf like are we really past the suspension of belief that we can't get over you know a black guy playing hans are we really gonna go there it's just dumb like yeah come on first of all it's it's a fake place i forget what city it takes place in but it's it's
0: a fake place with a fake history
1: uh arendelle Arendelle, thank you
0: (laughs) Listen,
1: my Disney is showing. I'm sorry.
0: I I couldn't remember. Give me a break. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, my brain's not filled with Disney lore today. You corporate fool.
1: <laughs> well, my brain is trained and full of it.
0: <laughs> I know you're full of it. Michelle. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, the argument really doesn't work both ways. I'm sure you could come up with some example where it would be important, but overwhelmingly, it doesn't matter the other way around.
1: Yeah. If, like I said, if the character doesn't have to be white, then we should be more open than we are about casting different types of people in that role.
0: Yeah. I think this brings up a big question for a lot of us when it comes to, to operas and music and art song which is, like, what does this do to the repertoire? What does this mean for us in terms of operas? And I know right now there is a petition going around that is asking the Met to take down any performance uh, and any recording off of their on-demand service that includes blackface, yellowface, or redface, or any white person pretending to be something that they're not in that sense, which is one side. I think there are people who definitely do want to see the complete, removal of those from the archive. I also have read an article that's actually from 2019, but there's a great article in the New York Times that is specifically talking about Madame Butterfly, but is also talking at large about the operas that would be considered problematic. Um, And the article is by, I should say, Catherine Hu, and she has two really powerful quotes in the article. The first of which is, and this is just about Why is it important for us to care? Which is operas, while while fantastical and fictional, still affect the way we perceive the people portrayed in them. You know, a lot of older operas rely on stereotypes. I mean, I I don't think that's... I don't even know that I need to go into detail about that. You know, a lot of these were, were old European men writing about cultures they're not a part of. But from her perspective... Some critics argue for retiring problematic operas from the stage. While newer operas written by people of color tell their stories responsibly, they aren't going to replace the classics anytime soon. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to diversify operas, both in composition and in casting. In fact, that's ideal. But in the meantime, doing away with these works would destroy the art form, preventing us from reshaping otherwise beautiful compositions in powerful ways. Opera companies have a responsibility to present classics in a way that helps audiences understand how problematic histories continue to reverberate today. And I think, I think that that is the two sides that we have to discuss. I'm not going to pick a side right now, but there is the idea that you could get rid of things, but there's also the idea that you would contextualize them. And she talks specifically, I believe, about a Seattle production where they did.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 2017, Seattle Opera did Madame Butterfly, and they really highlighted the bad and the ugly about the opera and put it within a historical context and put other stories alongside it so that you had no choice but to look at it and acknowledge that it was there and the article kind of talks about the idea of making people or rather largely white audiences realize what they're looking at you know because they might not be aware of the offensive stereotypes that they're watching on stage so contextualizing it and showing alternate history in addition helps you understand why there are issues and what those issues are in operas such as mad butterfly
0: you know i just said two seconds ago that i wasn't going to take a side i am going to pick a side but i'll also point out that because i am not any of the groups being portrayed in these shows that my opinion matters very little. So that's what I'll say. But I think the contextualizing of it is is the better option. Personally, only because I don't want to see opera companies erase our history. I don't want them to erase the fact that we screwed up. We did something bad. A- and we need to talk about it. There's great music in there, but we can talk about this. We shouldn't shove it away somewhere and pretend it never happened. We should openly discuss what we did, you know? And even with these archives, with these archived productions, I don't understand why there couldn't be an, you know, there's openings to a lot of these shows that include Renee Fleming talking about them or someone (laughs) talking at the opening. And I don't see why there can't be a discussion inserted into those recordings. Would people possibly skip it? Maybe. I don't know. But... I'd rather see discussion and disclaimers and acknowledgement of the history of opera than watch people try to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. But once again, I will will re-say that I am not a part of any of these groups, so my opinion does not matter. And there are going to be people upset no matter what we do. That's the other thing you have to realize. No matter what we do to move forward, there are going to be some people who are displeased with how we've handled things, and we're all just going to have to get used to it. Some days you're going to be right one day and wrong the next. And you just got to get over it and keep moving forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And aside from that that second quote, her first quote of operas, while fantastical and fictional, still af- affect the way we perceive the people portrayed in them. That to me is very strong because I think sometimes the argument is, well, there is that suspension of disbelief. You know, all of this crazy stuff is happening. Look at Magic Flute with monostatos. Right? Oh geez. A very problematic character that lives within a world where you have a bird man who's horny for a <laughs> bird woman, right? So there's lots of crazy stuff going on in that opera, but it still doesn't change the fact that Monostatos is a nasty, gross character, the entire opera, and is supposed to be a black man. And that's yeah. just not good. You know, because even if you have a an extremely fantastical production of flute that's hyper fantasy it still doesn't change the way that your brain associates what you're looking at and what you're hearing you know so i don't know that first quote really
0: no the first quote really hits the nail on the head which is to say that we we have to stop pretending that the stereotyping in opera doesn't affect anybody that those stories don't require context or understanding That we don't need to say, I mean, it's so easy for us to all sit back and be like, well, of course that's crazy. Like, of course we don't think. No. (laughs) If you've learned anything this week, you should learn that people still hold on to these insane ideas. And we have to talk about them. And we have to openly say that that's wrong. You know, and some of those, you know, with the story of Madame Butterfly, I mean, that's not that old. It's not as old as you think it is. Yeah. So, yeah, the contextualizing... And the understanding of, of that portrayal and the portrayals that have happened since in media. And so, like I said, you can, uh, you can argue either sides of this very easily. But definitely also, let me say the actual name of the article so you guys can go look it up. So I forgot to say the title.
1: Cite your sources, Jesse.
0: But it's uh, an opinion article from the New York Times and it's called Classical Opera Has a Racism Problem. Uh, and the byline is, don't try to hide it. Instead, make audiences confront it. It's a great article. Go read it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of talked about these, I don't know if you would call them ideals, but these points of conversation that you've probably been seeing a lot, especially in the last several days, especially in the last couple months. So we kind of wanted to talk about, okay, I'm an opera singer. I hear you. I'm learning. I'm trying to educate myself. But what are some actionable steps that I can actually take?
0: I'm sorry, I'm still laughing because I think all we've heard this week is uh, I'm reading, I'm listening, I'm learning. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's true, though. It's true. It's (laughs) just funny when you see it so often.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of (laughs) adapt, improvise, overcome. (laughs) (laughs) That meme. It's starting out there because when everybody says it, you're like, okay, we got it. We're all learning. We're all listening. We're all seeing. We're all trying our best. Yeah.
0: We've talked a lot of things today with these ideals that are more about the larger institutions. We've been talking about more things that would be in the hands of administrators. So we wanted to end this episode by talking about like actionable things for the individual opera singer. Because that is largely the stage most of us are at. And that doesn't mean we have, we're stopping our demands on these companies. It absolutely does not. But I also want to talk more about daily life every day what should we be doing? I already said that you should definitely go look at uh, Opera is Racist on Instagram because that's a great account to begin to understand on a daily level what's happening. But I think number one is look around you. In your school's program, in the theater companies you join, in the yaps you might be in, which is, is everyone in your program white? Are all the directors white? Are all the musicians white? Are all of the people who are on the board of directors for that company, white, like, start looking around you because if you're not noticing racism, it might be because there's literally no one else there but white people. I mean, that wouldn't stop people from being racist, but you get my point. Start recognizing it. Be ready to question and address the status quo of those institutions. I think that's step one is looking around and noting if it the place you're already at is inclusive in any way.
1: Yeah. Which feels insane,
0: but once again, you'd be shocked.
1: There's little progress in being surrounded by other people who are like you, right? The whole point is to diversify. So if you're in a space that has no people of color, you might take that as step one to ask why. Why is that? Yeah.
0: But another big thing for the individual is recognizing and not using coded language. Um, There's a huge list of coded language you could talk about, and a lot of the stuff on opera is racist, talks about different uses, but some examples of it are the use of the terms like urban and ghetto to describe characters or try to get something from somebody in terms of how they're acting on stage. There are long, long lists that talk and explain this better than I could ever do. Another thing that's just really awful that people do is people will make racist, uh, sexist, homophobic jokes and say, lucky for me, you're not as sensitive as other people or you know how to take a joke, which is a way of trying to keep you from saying, hey, that's some bullshit. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of coded language and a lot of ways that people try to make a point without having to say it openly. Be aware of those. Be willing to call people out when they are using them and be ready to question yourself on what you've been saying. Coded language is a is a big problem because it's a very sneaky way uh, committing a, what's considered a microaggression.
1: Keep your ears open and take note, you know, listen to what other people are saying and... What comments they're directing towards people of color.
0: But also, if somebody says something, don't stay quiet. Call them out when they (laughs) call them out when somebody says something racist. Call out your friends, call out your directors, call out your colleagues. Like, don't let people get away with that nonsense because that's why people think it's still acceptable to do stuff like that. It's because none of their friends call them out on it. And because internally, we all like to think that our friends are good people. You know, we like to think they're not like that or you don't want to lose your friends or your friend group or a connection or a job. But the fact is that every time, you know, every time someone who's black, indigenous, people of color, anyone who's in that group has to call someone out for that stuff. They are also risking jobs and connections when they have to do it. Yeah. And once again, the job for you is to also be willing to take those risks in order to do what is right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you call people out, we're not telling you to just, like, burn them at the stake right then and there. But, you know, if you see, especially, like, microaggressions happen, I think it's perfectly acceptable to pull that person aside and be like, hey, do you know what you just said? Do you know how that might affect somebody? What you just did was not cool. Yeah. Because, honestly, sometimes people, and this is bad, genuinely don't know. Sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not. So, I don't, I'm not, we're not telling you to... Cancel people left and right. right. Don't shout people down. I mean, if somebody says something like blatantly, horrifically racist to someone, yeah, you know, burn them. It's fine. Burn (laughs) your (laughs) mission. But you know, at the same time, if we are hunting people down for every thing that happens and are not, you know, at least trying to educate or come from an educational standpoint, it's not. It's might not be the most effective way to to solve the issue.
0: Yeah, it's definitely fine to just pull somebody aside and be like, hey, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but like that we don't use that language anymore. <laughs> like it's it's just not okay. There, There's a multitude of ways to handle it. Read the room. You know what to do. If you're going to do something that's more formal of a complaint, if you're going to go above the person who said the thing, whether that be you're going to a director or you're going to people who own the company or whatever it is, Make sure you check in with the person you're doing that on behalf of because no matter what you do, you're probably also risking, once again, their jobs and opportunities because the person's going to remember who they said it to. 100% check in with them before you do anything too drastic because, I mean, it's their life. (laughs) So make sure you check in with that person before you you operate on their behalf in a more formal capacity. And also remember that there's safety in numbers. If a big group of people come and make a complaint, it's going to be a lot easier to avoid being, like, singled out and targeted than if just one person comes forward. That's why when you protest, you usually go in a group. Yeah. And finally, and this is another part of the read, listen, and learn, When you stand up and you're asking for something, when you look at the Met and you're asking them and saying, like, I want to see more diversity in your board of directors and in your musicians and in your singers and in your, you know, what have you, whatever section you're talking about, you should also know the people in your community who you want to see. You should know singers who are not already on the Met stage (laughs) who you would like to see there. You know, and if you say, like, I want to see more operas by made and produced by black indigenous people of color uh, you should know some by name and have already seen them or have already researched them you should already know you shouldn't just put that upon them because that's you know and if you can't think of an opera written by anyone from that group and if you can't think of singers who not who are not already on the met stage then that's a moment for self-reflection on what am i putting in you know my daily listening what am i seeking out as a person who's, you know, our education never ends. So that that might be a moment for self-reflection. And that's not to say you're an awful person because you don't know already, but you should understand, like, at what levels opera and the business side of opera are fundamentally undermining diversity and inclusion. And there's the educational level, there's the monetary level, but you should know specifically what parts outside of just, obviously, racism <laughs> are adversely affecting those groups
1: absolutely yeah i mean that's kind of the interesting thing because we can say yeah we got to cast more people of color we need to have more you know people of color on our administration and we need to hear more compositions by people of color but then we also need to take a second to realize that opera is expensive as hell so it costs money And it's hard to do opera if you don't have money. That's just a fact. And so I wanted to take a second to shout out a couple different groups that specifically exist to offer opportunities for minorities and disadvantaged youth in classical music. Because, you know, when you are saying, I want to give these people a platform, we also need to give them the resources when they've been the subject of, you know, economic oppression for so long. So, here are a couple. Um, One that I got really excited about is, um, as I was kind of looking into this a little bit more, there is this music education program called El Sistema, which was founded in Venezuela in 1975. And I thought that this was really cool because their whole idea behind their program is that they offer these after-school hours of musical training and rehearsal for, you know, these kids who might not have the resources to pursue music. Sometimes they give them the use of a free instrument. Sometimes they have hours and hours of rehearsal to get these kids involved in music. And El Sistema has actually had offshoots from the original Venezuela organization. And there's over 80 El Sistema inspired groups in the U.S. and across the globe, which I just thought was really cool. That was not something that I was aware of prior. But you can look them up They have a lot of different El Sistema-inspired groups. Uh, Another really great one is the Sphinx Organization. They're like, you know, the Sphinx as an icon are all about the different parts that go into being a musician. So giving them music education, allowing artists to perform on stage, you know, being informed and preparing repertoire and programming and Integrating the communities represented in the audiences. So they do a lot of stuff as well. I thought that they were a cool group. So that's the Sphinx organization. Another one is Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. You'll recognize that we have Marin Alsop as the music director there. Somebody that we shouted out for our Women's Month. Um, she heads a organization called Orch Kids. Like O-R-C-H Kids. Which basically under her leadership and direction... They basically have young children of color in the orchestra, which is awesome. Not something that we see as much as we should. And then in another group, if you live in LA, is the Harmony Project. Very much the same thing. They offer a lot of music education to remove these systemic barriers so that people can achieve both in academic and social and music endeavors. <laughs> Yay.
0: Yeah, those are really cool. And it's good to know that there are already groups out there that we can support to help the next generation. Yeah. Um, And I know a lot of the people in our audience are teachers as well, so it's nice to be able to know, you know, some of the places you can look to.
1: Absolutely. We got to take care of our kids.
0: Yeah. And it's just like a final message because I know this has been kind of been a really overwhelming time for a lot of people. And I just want to say, like, it's okay to pace yourself. Everything is not going to change overnight. It's going to be a lot of talking. It's going to be a lot of advocating. It's going to be a lot of back and forth. And it's going to take a long time to to figure out the exact steps forward. We should keep doing it. But I know a lot of people are already experiencing burnout because, you know, you tried to jump into something all, all at once because you felt like you had to. And, and the fact is, like, make sure you take breaths. Make sure you take a step back. Make sure you assess what you're doing before you run headlong into things. But nobody can constantly be on. And in order for us to actually be effective, we have to be able to keep coming back. And if you if you let yourself just completely burn to the ground, you're not going to come back. So please, please take care of yourself, you know? It's a lot of exhausting conversations that we're going to have over and over again. So be prepared to to also take a step back and come back in. And I know a lot of people feel a lot of guilt about that, but burnt out, you're no good to anybody. <laughs> you know? Don't torture yourself um, because people need you to keep fighting. Yep. And if you want to have conversations, if you agree with us, if you disagree with us, please write to us. Uh, our DMs are open, we're happy to talk. We know that we might be wrong, <laughs> if we're aware. We're more than aware of that fact. Trust me, we talk about it all the time. Or if you have questions, or you just want to talk something out, or whatever it is, our DMs are open. Please come and talk to us. We will happily discuss with you. We'll point you to resources. You can share your resources with us. We love that. You can reach us on our Facebook and Instagram, which are at Opera Offstage. You can reach us on our website. We have a contact page. That's opera-offstage.com. But we love to hear from you guys, and... You know, like this is a big ongoing conversation. You know, our issues in opera is going to be multi-part series and there will be intersections between all of these groups too. So we're we're excited to have these discussions with you guys because this is the future of opera. And we hope you're all along for the ride. And that's it for us. So we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.